Hey, welcome back, everybody. It's time again for Rising Tide Changemakers, where we share the stories of unique individuals who bring big ideas to life, advance knowledge, build companies, and put meaningful change in motion. With the man who does all that every time he's on the show, our host, Greg Weiss. Hey, Greg. Hey, thanks, Paul. Welcome, Amy Edinger, my colleague from Cell and Developmental Biology here at UCI. She's the founder of Siege Pharmaceuticals, and I'm really excited to talk to her about this process. So welcome, Amy, and maybe we can get started by just telling us about you. Okay, thank you, Greg, for the invitation. I'm so happy to be here chatting with you. So um, I, as you mentioned, am a co-founder of Siege Pharmaceuticals and also a professor at UCI, where I've worked for 16 years. I teach introductory biology to freshmen. I'm the equity <laughs> advisor working for diversity and inclusion in science, and I also run a lab, and I have two teenage girls as well. And I guess one thing I wanted to throw out there is I am an animal lover. We were chatting before the show about this, and that's really what inspired me to go into science when I was a kid. I always wanted to have a pet, and my mom is kind of a very tidy person and did not want a pet in the house, so it wasn't... Uh, until I decided to go to vet school that I got all the con contact with animals that I wanted. And when I was at UC Davis trying to get into vet school, one of the things you had to do was work with a veterinarian for 100 hours. And there were so many pre-vet students at Davis that I had to work in a research lab with a vet. <laughs> but that ended up being a real bright spot because it convinced me that I wanted to go on and do a PhD and eventually become a scientist. This moment at UC Davis that ends up changing the your course of your career. Do you think that early experience, though, as uh, an animal lover and a th and thinking about repairing animals, really, it, does that influence your molecular uh, research today? Because now you're you're working not at the level of animals, but at the level of cells and molecules. Yeah. So there are actually there's a lot of interest in producing MD PhDs who have the clinical background to understand disease as well as the scientific background to understand the molecules and proteins that cause the disease. But I think veterinary PhDs, veterinary researchers, are kind of an underappreciated resource because. You know, they say that an MD degree is six inches wide and a mile deep, whereas a vet degree is a mile wide and six inches deep, right? So I know a ton of things about lots of different systems, how different animals differ, and I think that provides a really important perspective that helps to guide my research and to really understand what the important questions are, not just what can we answer, but really what should we answer. So it's almost like market research for starting companies and starting new ideas, new yeah. research directions. Yeah. So your laboratory here at UCI pursues a number of different directions. Can you tell us about your program to starve cells? Sure. Yeah. So that uh, that's where the name Siege Pharmaceutical comes from, right? Is Very we're trying cool. to yes attack cancer by starving it to death. And so when I was a postdoc, I found out that there's this yeast molecule, it has a horrible name, phytosphingosine, but it's from this class of molecules called sphingolipids, and they actually cause yeast to stop growing under dangerous conditions. And that's a protective mechanism. It's sort of like how bears hibernate in the winter. So this class of molecules, the sphingolipids, it like triggers this hibernation response in normal cells. But in cancer cells, they're trying to grow all the time. They're sort of locked in this on position. And when you try and stop them, they die. 
So that's kind of where the safety margin or the therapeutic index comes from with our drug is normal cells act like bears and hibernate. Mm -hmm. And I have this picture I love to show of a bear in the winter sitting at a picnic table and there's no food on it, right? So that's (laughs) the cancer cell, right? They don't know how to hibernate. So when we expose them to our drugs, they die. They don't hibernate. That's the model. So even though we're humans and we don't hibernate at all, we still have mechanisms in our cells that are kind of deep evolutionary things that are haven't been lost yet? Yes, your cells can hibernate. And that's kind of a complication. It's one way that certain cancer cells can escape therapeutic drugs. So we have to keep that in mind as a potential caveat is some cancer cells can hibernate and they might be able to hide from our drugs. So that's one of the things that's important in drug development for cancer, right, is figuring out which cancer classes are going to be most sensitive. That's this also idea of personalized medicine, right? We figure out exactly what kind of tumor each individual has, what particular mutations they carry, and then we can target them very specifically with a personalized program. So, you know, I think that the concept that we're developing will be broadly effective in lots of people with lots of different kinds of tumors, but there will be some that won't respond. So the more we understand about how the drug works, the better we can predict who the right people are to treat with this compound. All right. This sounds fascinating. It sounds really important research. But what moment inspired you to start a pharmaceutical company? You're doing this great research. You're publishing great research. Why start a company? It actually wasn't a happy moment. It was kind of a sad moment <laughs> when I was in my office. And I realized that I just couldn't develop these compounds as drugs in the academic framework. It just wasn't going to work. I'm a reviewer for the NIH. They want hypothesis-driven research. And the kind of things you have to do for drug development, they aren't that. It's also extremely expensive. And so the NIH does have some programs for drug development, but they, there isn't enough capacity for all of the ideas. And I'd applied to one of these NIH programs, and our concept wasn't selected. Oh. And so at that point, I said, you know, okay, I'm just going to have to do this myself. Nobody's going to help me. And that's when the journey began. Wow. And it's been an exciting journey? Yeah. It's been exciting, you know, ups and downs, highs <laughs> and lows. And yeah. <laughs> yes. So your, your interest then really is it's cells and metabolism, cells taking in nutrients. Mm-hmm. And I know you, you got into veterinary things because you're interested in animals and especially horses. Mm-hmm. Now, I know anyone who rides horses experiences that metabolism. You feel the heat coming off the horse mm-hmm. or you're shoveling, you know, tons <laughs> of, of, you know, the end products or ton, literally tons of hay. Mm-hmm. Do you think that there's some deep-seated interest in how animals and cells take in things and, and eat them and uh, transform them? Yeah. You know, one thing that I really appreciate about this concept is I like to go and talk to groups of patients or just other mm-hmm. people who are stakeholders. And you can present this idea of starving things to death and causing them to hibernate. And everybody gets it, you know. And one of the best things about it is when I go to these meetings with patients or normal people, they ask really great questions. You know, sometimes I think that they really see the forest when a lot of times the scientists were focused on the trees. And so I have to say from those conversations with the average people, right, not scientists, no PhDs, I've gotten some really great ideas about questions we really should ask or different avenues we should pursue. So I guess what I'm saying is I think the idea is accessible. It's just kind of basic and people generally get it. So hopefully that means the idea is robust and will actually work. And then uh, so you're inspired by these people asking these questions. Mm -hmm. Does that in turn drive the questions that you ask in your research? Do you ever come back and say, you know, they asked me this question. I can't answer it. 
Absolutely. Yeah. Cool. And so I think that's something I talk about a lot because I train students in postdocs, right? You can always think of a bunch of questions, right? But what's really hard is figuring out which are the right ones to answer. And so in my lab, sometimes that what decides whether it's the right one to answer is what's going to what's going to happen if you figure it out? What's the impact? How will this affect people and patients and drug therapy? Right. right? how will this move things forward? So not answering things just because we're curious, but because it will make a difference. But what advice can you give other academics who are interested in starting a company? The first one is be persistent. So I'll I say, you know, Richard Sudek was really helpful just mm-hmm. as um Kind so he's of a our support system. Director of Field Applied Innovation. Yeah. So in one of those tough times, I actually ended up quitting my own company at one point. Oh wow. Yeah, that was really disturbing. I sort of felt like I'd had open heart surgery or something. I sat oh. in my pajamas all day Saturday. And one of the <laughs> things that I did was watch um, Richard's video on failure. Right. And so that's one of the things that I have learned from being an entrepreneur is the value of failure. And in academics, we're taught to hide our failures right. and not admit mistakes. Right. right. But in the business world, it's like you embrace them and learn from them. Right. Mm. You're not trying hard enough if you're not making mistakes, if you're not failing. Right. And so that has been, I think, kind of a, a gift to me of this whole getting involved in uh, applied innovation and just entrepreneurialism in general is learning that failing isn't something you should be ashamed of. So that's the message I try and communicate to academics. That's message one. Message two is success depends on networks, right? So you never know who's going to help you out. So being kind and talking to everybody and showing respect towards everybody and their opinions is super important. Like yes. what I said, talking to patients and stakeholders, right? They have things to teach me. And that's kind of a, a message I try and share with my trainees as well. Everybody has something to teach you. Any conversation, you can walk away learning something. That's true. That's so. really great advice. So you alluded to this earlier, and I can't uh, let you go without telling us a little bit about your job as equity advisor or School of Biological Sciences. Mm. This is the role in which you're uh, helping ensure that we're doing diverse searches for new faculty Mm -hmm. and solving difficult problems. What has been the most surprising aspect of that job? What what has really surprised you? A woman who's been a scientist for Mm -hmm. a long time, you know, pushing 30 years now. And for probably 20 years of that time, I didn't think that there was bias against women. You know, I've always been pretty successful. I've done well in school. I didn't think there were problems. But you get to a certain point mm-hmm. and you start to feel the resistance, right? And you start to wonder, is this due to gender? And so being equity advisor, which I've been for like five years now, one of the things that I feel is a responsibility is to read up, right, on bias against people of color, bias mm-hmm. against women. And now that I I have read these things, I can recognize the patterns. And I see it so much more clearly at this stage. So I think one thing that being equity advisor has taught me is that gender bias and bias against people of color or people from underrepresented groups is real, right? Yes. And even if we don't mean to be biased, we are. It's, it, it's, it's subconscious. It's part of human, you know, human biology yes. in some way. Yes. It's really disturbing, actually. Yes. And so one of my jobs, as you mentioned, is to go talk to search committees who are going to look for new faculty members to try and talk to them about how to be inclusive and overcome right. their biases. And I always say, 
I went to the Project Implicit website. So there's a Harvard website where you can go and take a test oh, I've done to that. figure out what That's your biases are. Yeah. Yeah. And so I've taken the one on women in science several mm-hmm. times. So it's to elicit whether you're biased against women who are scientists. And every single time I've taken it, which is three, I've come out moderately biased against women scientists. <sighs> and so I always point that out, right? Just because mm-hmm. I'm a woman doesn't mean I'm not biased. I grew up in the same society you did. Just because I'm biased, it doesn't mean I'm a bad person, right? It means I have something to work on. Right. That's all. So, right. you know, people say things and do things, and I make mistakes all the time in sort of the DEI universe. I say the wrong thing. And that's another place where we have to be kind to ourselves and not beat ourselves up when we make mistakes, but just learn from them and move forward. Right. And uh, try to I- implement better systems to mm-hmm. acknowledge in advance it's going to happen. We've got to catch it early. Yes. So. So what motivates you every day? Well, I think the the fundamental thing is I want to leave the world a better place than I found I it. I love it. Right? That's everybody great. everybody kind of says that. And mm-hmm. the secondary part of that is I realized sort of when you asked me about when did you decide to found a company, one of the things I realized was if I don't do this, nobody else will. It just won't happen. And so that's an, another thing that motivates me to go forward. If I walk away it's probably going to be the end. I hmm. don't think anybody else is going to take exactly the approach we're taking. Right. And have that background, deep background and deep appreciation yes. of animals and metabolism and yes. horseback riding and all those things that you yes. bring to your questions. Yes. I can definitely see that. So uh, where can le- listeners uh, learn more about you and your program, your projects and your companies? Well, I think probably the best place is uh, we do have a website. It's edingerlab.bio.uci.edu. And actually on that website, there's one of the uh, options on the menu bar is not a scientist. And I've gotten a lot of really positive feedback. So that's a part of the site that's written in lay language for people who aren't scientists and sort of explains what we do in very general terms. Yeah, that's very rare, actually. I don't know many scientists who have something for the lay public on there. That's great. What motivated you to put that on there? That's an unusual uh, feature. Yeah, I think it's the interactions I've had with patients and stakeholders. And some of the funding that I've gotten has been from foundations Mm -hmm. that actually involve patients and stakeholders. When I reviewed for the American Cancer Society, there were always two patient advocates on the review committee who reviewed grants just like the scientists. Wow. And so, you know, like I said, I've developed a great amount of respect for Lots of diverse opinions, and so I wanted to be my what our work to be accessible to everybody. And it also must give you a perspective about these important problems. Something you alluded to earlier. Yes. So if you you know if you're talking to physicians, talking to patients, you hear about challenges, right? Yes, and I often tell my students if you can't explain to your mother or your grandmother why this matters, then you're doing the wrong thing. That's true. So if you met anybody whose cancer is exactly what Siege Pharmaceuticals is aiming for. Yeah, actually, there's one patient who's emailed me a few times asking when our drug is going to be available, saying he's read our papers and he's really excited about it. Yeah. So what do you tell him? I tell him, we're almost there. We're trying, you know. (laughs) Work faster. (laughs) IND, hopefully on the horizon. Really? Oh, that's exciting. in there. That's really great. And Siege Pharmaceuticals is located here in uh, Beale Applied Innovation, right? Yes. You have lab space in University Lab Partners. Tell us a little bit about that. We have just a couple minutes left. But I think this is such a unique and powerful 
resource we have on campus. Oh, yeah. So that was one of the most difficult things about starting a company is there was no wet lab space that you could use. So if a building was paid for with government funds, you weren't right. allowed to do activities there that were considered commercial. So there was no space on campus. We had to wait until this space was available nearby. I mean, before we were looking at incubators in San Diego or Los wow. Angeles, which would have been really difficult. Right. So um, for we have a $2 million grant from the oh, National cool. Cancer Institute, right? Oh, and and getting those grants depends on you having lab space. Right. And so having this space so close to UCI was instrumental. That's great. So then it allows you to have lots of interactions, train mm -hmm. people, mm -hmm. uh, great you know, flow of information backwards and forwards. Yes. That sounds really great. Yes. And leverage our networks, right? So my network after 16 years at UCI is also available to the principal scientist and CEO of Siege. That's right. right. That's right. Yeah. And it also keeps the CEO of Siege near us as well. So yes. we can uh, leverage his network as well. Yeah, absolutely. Because I know it's it's Dan Gill, right? Yes. Uh, former yes. Allergan. We're super lucky. Yes. Yeah. To get Dan on board. Giant in the pharmaceutical industry. It's yes. Great, great choice. Well, there's so much to learn from today. And uh, it's been a real pleasure talking to you, Amy. Thank you so much for joining us. I also want to thank the listeners for listening to Rising Tide Changemakers. If you like our show, please leave us a review and share with your friends. And I'll close by reminding you that in this world, nothing is permanent except change. Well, there you have it. Another episode of Rising Tide Changemakers. It's a production of UCI Beale Applied Innovation and is recorded at the OC Talk Radio Studio right here at the Cove at UCI. And of course, we want to give a shout out to our team. The podcast is made possible by associate producer Ethan Perez and yours truly, sound engineer Paul Roberts. For more information about UCI Beal Applied Innovation, you can visit us online at innovation.uci.edu. Innovation.uci.edu. Any opinions or endorsements expressed in this podcast are those of the host and the guest only and do not represent the views of UCI Beale Applied Innovation, the University of California, Irvine, Regents of the University of California, Irvine, or any other organization associated with this show.